Hello, all you Dirty Rats fans. We've put together two Christmas packages with books and t-shirts. To order, go to HowieCarshow.com and click on store. See you later. This podcast contains dramatic reenactments and content that may be considered unsuitable for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, my name's Steve Davis. Uh, brother of Deborah Davis was murdered by Steve Fleming and Whitey Bulger, September 81. Debbie Davis was a year younger than Steve. She was his closest sibling. There were 10 Davis children in all. Life wouldn't be easy on the Davis kids. We had it rough. Very abusive father. We got abused a lot, and, uh, and we were all trying to escape from the house. Debbie didn't particularly dazzle anyone as a child, but as she grew up, that changed. I mean, she just—I mean, it's like watching a flower bloom. She's just beautiful. And in the '70s, she. She looked like Farrah Fawcett. She won that uh, Farrah Fawcett look-alike. It was 1974. Debbie was 17. She was already married. Her husband was in jail. She worked at a jewelry store, George Taylor's in Brookline Village. One morning, mobster Johnny Martirano strolled in. Debbie knew him. She wasn't a stranger to the gangsters in Boston. But Johnny was with someone that Debbie had never seen before, Stevie Flemmy. After 16 years, the FBI finally has its man. A tip led investigators to a Santa Monica apartment. It was Whitey and his girlfriend. Agents and other task force members. I don't know how they make people like that. I, I don't know how a human can be like that. Please allow me to speak plainly. I do not know where my brother is. We start off with breaking news. I Notorious mobster Whitey Bulger is dead. Reports surfacing that Bulger was killed in a West Virginia prison. A name out of that. The guy looked See you later. I put one in the chamber like... And he looked up. And I'm aiming. Says the other guy. Hey, a bag of peanuts, please. Yeah. From HCRN Studios in Boston, this is Dirty Rats. He was known as the Rifleman. If the name didn't tip you off, Flemmy was a hitman, a brutal one at that. But Flemmy was back in Boston after five years as a fugitive. He'd been charged with the car bombing of a local lawyer. But as far as his rap sheet was concerned, that was the tip of the iceberg. He'd already murdered perhaps a dozen people. He was 40 years old, 23 years older than Debbie, the day he spotted her standing behind the glass counter. One day, uh, Steve Fleming and Johnny Monterano went into the store. My sister had, uh, was behind the counter, you know, I guess talking with them. And Steve took a liking to her or something. And uh, 
my father never approved that, never liked that, but Steve pushed it. And we just offered her things that we never had, you know, freedom, money, whatever. And he knew he was a predator. She had come down and told me, she says, you'll never guess who I'm seeing, which everybody knew Steve Fleming, everyone knew the Madavanos, everyone knew uh, Bulger and all of them, and said, you know, we used to look up to guys like that, you know, he was a gangster and we thought that was cool. Debbie may have been the latest woman in Fleming's life, but she was hardly the only woman. He had a wife and two children in one suburb. He had a second common-law wife and three more children in another town. But Debbie was a beauty. She could have been a model. And in no time, Flemmy was setting her up in her own apartment. To say Flemmy began spoiling his new younger girlfriend would be an understatement. He bought her one car after another. First a Datsun, then a Corvette, finally a sports car, a Jaguar. Long-nosed Jaguar, two-seated two Jaguar. You know, they were rare then, too. You didn't see many of them. And uh, she pulled down in front of the gas station to show off to, to the brothers and, and my dad. And uh, my father come out. He, he knew who gave her the car, and he didn't like Steve. He come out and he took a sledgehammer and bat and I ruined the whole car. Ruined, I mean, near totaled it. And uh, he said to her, you know, she was crying about it and everything. Steve had said to her, if it wasn't your father, it'd be a dead man, you know. And I think it was six months after that they found him in the Marina Bay. goes on I guess you know it's we all thought about it and the way it looked like it was an accident but that, I don't believe that at Whitey Bulger's trials in 2013 Fleming was questioned about his relationship with Debbie's father that is before Eddie Davis ended up drowned in Marina Bay the lawyer brought up the story of the sports car Flemmy lashed out at the lawyer's suggestion that he had something to do with Eddie Davis's death. If you're trying to insinuate a connection, that, that's off the wall. It really wasn't off the wall. You see, Debbie's father wasn't the only man in her life that would end up dead. In fact, around the same time she met Flemmy, Debbie had been going out with a local guy closer to her own age. His name was David Jassy. I, I know he was a handsome kid, he was a good kid, he was out of High Park, and uh, Steve found out, it was like a week later or something, that they found a body in uh, the Blue Hills. I mean, the kid was tortured and beat. He didn't deserve it. Debbie's brother Ronnie embarrassed Fleming at a wedding. Later, while serving time in prison, Ronnie was stabbed to death. Whether or not Fleming had a connection to the murder was never confirmed. Debbie's circle was dwindling, and her already dark life was getting darker. If you haven't figured it out yet, 
Flemmy was twisted. Stevie was not satisfied simply having wives and girlfriends. He began having sex with Debbie's younger sister. Michelle was underage at the time. Unlike Debbie, who was blonde, Michelle had dark hair, which is why Flemmy began referring to her by a nickname, the name of a Hollywood brunette from his youth. I think she had just got her license like 16 years old. And, uh, I forget what he called her, Ava Gardner or something. He would give her some name. My little Ava Gardner or something. And, uh, Hey, we were all upset with it, but like, like I said, you can't tell, you couldn't tell her what to do. In addition to Debbie, her sister Michelle, and his wives, he was also having a sexual relationship with his own stepdaughter and his biological daughter. Flemmy continued to rise in Boston's underworld. The reviews for Dirty Rats are in. People love this gripping and gory true crime podcast. But a lot of Dirty Rats fans want more. Become a Dirty Rats Patreon member. Just go to patreon.com slash dirtyratspod. For only $4.99 a month, you'll get content like John Zip Connolly's full FBI training video, behind-the-scenes interviews with the Dirty Rats writers, producers, and narrators, and so much more. Patreon.com slash dirtyratspod. Flemmy continued to rise in Boston's underworld. He and his partner, Whitey Bulger, were taking more and more control of the drug scene in Boston, and their method of destroying their competition was simple and effective. They would rat out other gangsters to the FBI. In fact, Flemmy and Whitey were paying off six FBI agents, and one G-man who was getting a big chunk of that was John Zip Connolly. Zip was grabbing hundreds of thousands of dollars for his services as a crooked cop. He was a major cog in the machine that Flemmy and Whitey had created. He was vital. He was their most valuable secret. But he wasn't a secret to Debbie. In fact, Flemmy's beautiful blonde knew a lot more than she was supposed to. And according to Flemmy, that didn't sit well with Whitey Bulger. A lot of things about Debbie were not sitting well with Whitey. Her lifestyle was bringing an attention to us. I bought her a Mercedes, I sent her on vacations, I sent her to Mexico with her mother, I gave her a lot of money, she had a lot of jewelry. You know, people started noticing that. But the lawyer wondered, why would this bother Whitey? Because he was always a, a low-key profile guy. He didn't want to draw attention to us, and that was drawing attention to me and to him. He said that, I want to send her away. He said. I was, I said, no, of course not, why? And he had a whole litany of reasons why, how John Connolly had helped us, Johnny, myself, all of us protected us, now we're jeopardizing all that. He wanted me to bring her and he wanted to kill her. But you know the expression, there are three sides of a story, your side, my side, and the truth. Well, that version of this story, the one where Debbie just knew too much and had to go, that was Stevie's side and he stuck to it. But there was another, more plausible reason for Debbie's murder. Just as her boyfriend had a wandering eye, Debbie too played the field, and on one of her many vacations to Acapulco, Debbie met a rich young Mexican. His name was Gustav. This guy from Mexico was probably a billionaire back then. He had a lot of money. He used to fly her back and forth on his own private jet. 
you know, and, and, and certain guys that are insecure. I mean, he was fucking his own stepdaughter. You know, I, sick. He didn't want to probably lose any of it, but instead of letting someone else take it, he was going to get rid of it, you know. So which was it? Was Flemmy driven insanely jealous by the idea of his trophy girlfriend finding a richer, younger man? Or did Whitey really think Debbie knew too much about their criminal empire? Either way, Debbie had a premonition something was going to happen. She had mentioned to one of my brothers that uh, if she was ever missing, it was him. It was September 17, 1981. Flemmy had just closed on the purchase of a home in South Boston for his elderly parents. He walked Debbie to the house. The air was cool and the sky was cloudy. According to Flemmy, he opened the door to his new house and that is when Whitey grabbed Debbie and began strangling her. A different convicted murderer in the crew told the jury that Whitey had told him that Debbie was brought down to the basement alive, tied to a chair with duct tape over her mouth to prevent her from screaming. At that point, Whitey told his underling, Flemmy stared into his girlfriend's terrified eyes, bent over and kissed her forehead, then whispered, quote, you're going to a better place, unquote. Under cross-examination, Flemmy adamantly denied he'd ever told his about-to-be-murdered lover that she was going to a better place. But Flemmy did admit that after Deb Davis was lying dead in the cellar, strangled, he had stood over her lifeless body and screamed out, Let her pray. Whitey's lawyer asked, Wasn't it a little late at that point for Deb Davis to be saying a prayer? That's just a reaction on my part. Yes, because I was in a semi-traumatic state. I said, let her pray. Debbie Davis, age 26, was dead. The deed was done, and now it was time to dispose of her body. There was already a tarp in the house to wrap the body in. There were pliers, a hammer. What happened next was gruesome, even for gangsters. But to understand the twisted logic behind it, you'd have to rewind 12 years to another murder in the Nevada desert. It was 1969, and Flemmy had murdered a potential witness against him. The victim's body was later identified by dental records. Though Flemmy was never charged in this murder, he was determined to make sure that dental records would never be used against him again. This is Brian Kelly the lead federal prosecutor in Whitey's 2013 trial. They thought uh, after somebody was murdered, uh, if they pulled the teeth out, there'd be no way uh, a police officer could identify the victim later because there'd be no way to match it up with the dental record. So on several occasions, Bulger's closest uh, henchman, Stevie Flemmy, pulled out the teeth of the victims after Bulger murdered them. This was one of those occasions. Before strangling Debbie Davis, Whitey and Flemmy had made sure there was a pair of pliers in the basement. At trial, on cross-examination, Whitey's lawyer asked Flemmy about another tool in his basement that day, a hammer. The lawyer asked Flemmy if he had used that hammer to smash teeth. I didn't smash her teeth up. Show me where it says that I smashed her teeth up with a hammer. Did you? 
I'd like to respond to that, please. You accuse me of it. Did you pull the teeth out of her mouth? You said I smashed your teeth out with a hammer. Show me where I said that. You make that accusation. Respond to it. Did you pull the teeth out of her mouth? I didn't smash your teeth out with a hammer. According to Fleming, the effort of strangling Debbie took its toll on Whitey. He trudged upstairs and lay on the floor of the still unfurnished house for a short nap. But the gruesome cleanup job was not yet finished. Debbie's lifeless body was assuming room temperature in the cellar, so her older boyfriend went to work. First he stripped off her clothes, then he wrapped her nude, toothless body in the tarp that had been left there for use as an improvised body bag. At nightfall, two of Whitey's Southie thugs pulled up in front of the house in a station wagon. They loaded the body into the back and then drove Whitey and Stevie a couple miles south to the banks of the Neponset River. Debbie wasn't the first victim they buried within sight of the Four River Bridge to Quincy. They dug a shallow grave for an underworld rival of Whitey's from Southie, Tommy King. They'd murdered him in a car. From then on, every time Whitey drove over the bridge, he'd glance over at the riverbank, chuckle, and say, tip your hat to Tommy. According to Flemmy, he lugged his lover's body 80 or 90 yards from the road, then began digging a shallow grave as Whitey sat on the riverbank and watched. After her family realized she was missing, Flemmy went to Debbie's mother's house, where he wept on Olga Davis's shoulder, pretending he had no idea where his girlfriend had gone. He went to my mother's and he was crying to my mother. Oh my God, oh my God. I said, this piece of shit. This fucking motherfucker. I know my my mother didn't, you know, didn't believe it. Because she'd call my mother three, four times a day. I mean, she was like, they were like best friends. She was, she'd always call my mother. Never failed. Wherever she was, wherever it's been, she, she'd call my mother. Debbie's mother, Olga Davis, recalled the last time she saw her daughter. She hugged and kissed me. I love you, Mama, and left. And i never seen her since. Whitey's lawyer, Hank Brennan, asked him how he could be so duplicitous. That was part of the cover-up scenario, yes. When you commit a murder, you don't admit it to people. Well, I don't know if you're aware of that. You should be. You're an attorney. Steve Davis remembered his sister's premonition. He remembered his father being found dead in Marina Bay. He recalled his older brother stabbed to death in prison after embarrassing Stevie. Debbie's old boyfriend, David Jassy, beaten to death in the Blue Hills. In 2000, 19 years later, after a member of the gang flipped, state police began excavating all of the gang's burial grounds. As the digging began, reporters asked Debbie's mother, Olga, how she felt about the inevitable discovery about to be made. I'm going to be very sad to hear what happened to her, but at least I'll be happy it's a closure. I'll know where she is. I got a, we got a call. I was, at, I was working at Boston, and I got a call from Peter Gelsinis. He said, they're digging bodies. They're looking for your sister down at the... Ponce River, I said. Oh, I went down to the Neponset River and they were looking. They they let me go across the line, but they were digging. And uh, 
days, days. So then it was uh, Dan Doherty and Steve Johnson come down to me and said, "We're sorry, we, we we can't find your sister. She's not. It's you know, we can't find the body there. It might have washed out to sea." I says. I said, "Wait a minute, what are you talking?" So I went down to the Neponset River. I had a nine-month-old bull mastiff, Parkus. I was sitting there with the dog, and I never leased my dog. He was stand, sitting beside me, looking up at me, and I'm talking to Dan Nolan. I said, she's here. I know she's here. So the, my dog walked away, and he was sniffing somewhere, and I, says, I said to him, if they said she's here, she, they were down here pointing out where the bodies were, and if they said she's here, she's here. And he said, well, we can't. We, we can't dig no more. We dug everywhere. So I'm watching my dog over the distance near the edge of the water, I says. And he come back to me again. And then he went back over. And I says, what about over there? He said, it's too close to the marsh. I said, right over there. Why don't you dig where my dog was sniffing and everything? I said, just... And sure enough, they, they stayed one more day. Early in the morning, they come down to the body shop. I get a phone call, Steve, we found your sister. Debbie Davis's remains were found on the banks of the Neponset River. We found the remains of a, uh, according to the medical examiner, it's the remains of a female. But the question surrounding Debbie Davis still remains unanswered. Who actually killed her? Was it Flemmy or Whitey? It was one gangster's word against another. Debbie's brother Steve has his own theory. Bulger put up big stink through the whole trial if people really followed like I did about my sister. He didn't, he didn't, he had nothing to do with killing her. He had nothing to do with killing her. He knew it was going to happen, but I say nothing to do with physically killing her. And uh, I believe he knew every bit of it, when it was going to take place, how it was going to go down. And I, I believe in my heart, and if I'm wrong, and that, that wouldn't be the first time. In 2003, when Stevie Flemmy pleaded guilty to her murder, Steve Davis stood up in court and screamed, Fuck you, you fucking piece of shit! Three years later, Steve's other sister, Michelle Davis, died of a drug overdose on the same day she was released from her final stay in the South Bay House of Correction. She was 38. Olga died in 2007, predeceased by three of her ten children. October 2013. In the federal courtroom in Boston where he'd spent all summer on trial, Whitey was about to be sentenced to two life sentences plus five years. However, on the murder of Debbie Davis, the jury had returned a verdict of no finding. In other words, after hearing all the testimony and all the arguments, the jurors had been unable to decide whether it was Whitey or Stevie who had actually murdered her. Nonetheless, before imposing the sentence, the judge allowed Steve Davis to deliver a brief victim impact statement. Unlike ten years earlier, at Flemmy's sentencing, this time Steve Davis did not begin swearing at his sister's murderer, but afterwards, Outside the courthouse, Steve Davis told reporters what he'd really like to have done to Whitey Bulger. I said if I could, I'd strangle him with my bands the way he did my sister. Henry David Thoreau once wrote, 
most men lead lives of quiet desperation. Steve Davis well understands the meaning of those words. Over the years, almost everyone who came into contact with either Stevie Flemmy or Whitey Bulger eventually felt desperation, quiet or otherwise. But for Steve Davis, the most gaping of all the holes in his heart remains the murder of his sister Debbie, strangled by a monster. He's going to be... Him and Bulger have to be the biggest fucking cowards out there as far as bullies. When they talk about these kids in school today, bullies. They were grown-up bullies, picking on young guys and, and going after the weak. I don't have hurt me, but I would fucking, I'd like to take every breath of air out of the, the you know, I'm glad Bul when Bulger died, they said, oh, look at the way, I said, that was, it, it couldn't have been any more perfect than, than the way he was unrecognizable and fucking beaten. I hope he felt every fucking part of, every impact of the, the lock that hit him, you know, and uh, it's, just I don't know how they make people like that I, I don't know how a human can be like that taking you know you want to fight someone you want to take something take it from someone that's that's worthy of fighting don't take it away from the weak this podcast was written by Howie Carr produced by Grace Curley and narrated by me Taylor Cormier if you enjoyed this episode Subscribe to Dirty Rats on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Your positive review will help others find our podcast and help us continue to tell the story of these dirty rats. Next time on Dirty Rats. Former Boston FBI agent John Connolly is looking at a life sentence. He's been found guilty today in Miami of second-degree murder but acquitted of conspiracy. So he was very close to, to Whitey, though. He was closer to Whitey. I don't, I don't think so. Well, how did he and Whitey get to know each other? I think it all came years later. But they came from the same neighborhood? Yes. Oh. Did uh, Mr. Conley assist you in any of your political endeavors? I believe so.